Welcome to the season of Lent, to the first Sunday of our long period of preparing ourselves for Easter. It's a mixed bag of a season. It's a season where we are recognizing both darkness and light, both the winter that still grips us and the new crocuses budding up, both the coming crucifixion, but ultimately the resurrection. A dire time, real deal time, time for us to get ourselves in order, get our houses in order, get our lives in order. We usually don't wash our hands for 40 days straight, so maybe a better metaphor would be rehab, right? You're going in for a time of conscious and intentional purity to get ready then for the rest of your life to being launched into a new lifestyle afterwards. The theme for today is Obedience, how we obey. We understand that, as we learned in children's time, many boundaries are good for us, are there for our own protection, our own safety. As they say in these parts, meth, not even once. Like, there's some lines you just don't cross. You don't try them. You don't test it. You don't go there. And you know it's for your own good. You know that it will bring you life. But the problem is that as a pastor, standing up here talking about obedience, who would be wearing this jacket if I hadn't gotten too hot in it earlier, a lot of what people think I'm going to say is going to be much more authoritarian and controlling than I believe Scripture calls for or even allows. A novel I recently read put these words in the mouth of a priest. An open mind is like an open wound, subject to infection. And although that is the farthest thing from what I would wish to express, Unless I'm very careful, it's what a lot of people are going to hear when I talk about obedience, regardless of how well I might hedge my words or qualify them. So I want to lead with saying what I'm not saying and where we are not going. Because as Paul has expressed to us most recently in in the passage we just read, in Christ we are freed from sin. Freed from guilt. Freed from death. It doesn't mean that we can get away with anything, but that we move with strength. Eyes opened to that which makes us weak, to that which we need to avoid. And even more aware of that which makes us strong, that which draws us onward. For Paul... This idea that sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned, is then counteracted by the idea of obedience and righteousness coming into the world through this other bookend, this second Adam, Jesus Christ. Once again, I feel like 
half of my job when we, whenever we read a passage from Paul is to help untangle some of his language. Paul is so eager to express his heart that it seems like he sometimes can't stop stumbling over his tongue and the Greek isn't any better. In fact, often as they translate into English, people will impose a little bit of structure and grammar and make it more comprehensible. And the Greek is just a completely vague, difficult to follow. And yet, although the thread of Paul's sentence structure and logic may be hard to follow, the beacon of Paul's heart is not. His words evoke something deep inside us, a emotional message that the complexities of language cannot obscure. Paul is interested in telling us that although you may have the feeling that we're all inevitably doomed to sin because of our human condition, because of who we are, Paul asserts that we are also all inevitably blessed with obedience as Christ's spirit in time permeates our lives, our communities, our world. Interestingly, as a side note, Paul, whose views on women aren't always up to some of our 21st century standards, squarely blames Adam, whose name means human, for the first sin and doesn't try to imply any of that 19th century sexist baloney about women being the root of all evil. So at least he's got that going for him. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. No, the word this morning, as we talk about obedience, isn't don't question the rules, don't have an open mind. When we can't question something, how can we become champions for it ourselves? If you have never been allowed to interrogate the rules or the, or the community in which you live, how is it supposed to come into your heart, become something that you own and you take care of? If you've been never, never been allowed to ask why, how are you supposed to answer it when it's asked of you? All we'll be able to say is, why not? The bad stuff that will happen if we don't obey. We will be limited, hampered in our ability to say why the good stuff that will happen when we do obey. In Christ, we all have access to that turn away from the law, away from the stick and towards the carrot, the grace the good thing that obedience promises. Let me give you an example in this jacket that I'm wearing. The plain coat, oh, hey, it's out of order. Where'd that go? Oh, maybe I'm missing that slide. 
The plain coat became for our communities a law that no longer made sense to people. Interestingly enough, in a lot of Mennonite congregations, people who had for, for decades no longer been dressing plain actually took on the plain coat and the head covering in specific in the 1920s and 30s. For some communities, it was an imposition that only lasted half a century between the 20s and the 70s. For others, it was part of their traditional dress. It was just simply the way that they wore clothes, like the Maasai wearing the red checkered patterns that they do, or Tibetans wearing the headdresses that they do. It wasn't so much imposed and required as it was simply part of the culture. But in those places, when plain, the, the coat and the covering became sternly enforced by people standing in the place where I am standing, it did not take long for something that could have been a joyful expression of devotion and community adherence and even cultural heritage to become a ball and chain, to become a burden, a weight. But the ethic and the culture of plain dress didn't die when the rule saying you had to wear one of these did. It doesn't necessarily look the same as before, but in many ways our ethic of plain dress, you could even argue, is stronger than ever. After all, which is more prideful? Cutting and forming your own separate, unique, independent clothes that make you stand out in a crowd or going on down to the goodwill and getting by with secondhand clothes? Not that I'm saying that everybody has to do that, but when I look at how we as a community live, and then I also look at broader American culture and how it is being impacted by our witness and the witness of other followers of Christ and followers of faith similar to ourselves, I see a rise today in people's desire to be a little bit more humble, a little bit more authentic, and maybe not consume quite so much all the time. The law of plain dress may have passed away from many of our communities as Mennonites, but the spirit is still there. The stick may no longer be beating our backsides, but God's holy carrot is still dangled in front of our noses. For Psalm 32, we are, it may, it, in Psalm 32, it is made plain that sin is not a relief. We often get caught imagining that, that doing the right thing is what's hard and straining and stressful. And then you, you relax and you can sin. For Psalm 32, the vision is quite the contrary. Sin is a burden that weakens your bones. It is heat stroke that drags your forehead to the ground. Something to be actively combated and managed. Drinking of cool, clean water. The righteousness that restores you. 
and lifts you up. Confession as medicine. This testimony of relief from the psalm holds the potential to help reorder our thinking. Holds the potential to let us realize that what we may have previously thought of as enjoyable, relaxing, fun, is in fact a slow process of ever-worsening pain. And that those things which are good for us, that bring relief, are where we need to pay to spend our attention, are the locations where we need to set our eyes. For another example, I think about raising children. This, dif- this, distant, this difference between the, the carrot and the stick, the punishment of disobedience and the lure of obedience. Nobody wants to raise their kids purely by fear. Right? The Bible may say, spare the rod, spoil the child, but I really don't think that's the end of parenting or even a particularly good starting place. And yet, can we legitimately say in our Christian walk that we can get rid of the stick entirely and focus only on the carrot? That we can entirely ignore the law and focus only on grace and the coming goodness that we hope to inherit? to put it in the New Testament Christian terms. Well, I've got to say that the metaphor of raising children implies that it's not quite that simple. Because children run into traffic. In fact, I did not realize that one of our children had gone out the back door and that child very nearly was hit by a car just this last week. So I felt that God put the stick to me a little bit, put a little bit of fear in my heart. And that there is also perhaps a legitimate place for teaching your child directly, sternly, uncompromisingly when a single failure will result in death, when there will be no second chances. You can't just like go out on the road and learn to not get hit by cars the hard way. School of hard knocks is not going to work out for this one. In questions of life and death, those hard rules, those railings that are for our protection, that stick that punishes us when we disobey might well be necessary because there may not be second chances. Now, we hope that that is not the majority of our life experiences and that most of the time we have some more freedom to get to know the lay of the land ourselves and internalize the rules ourselves rather than simply having mandate from on high that we must obey be laid on our backs. But I've got to admit, the experience of raising children really makes me feel that we cannot just turn our backs on strictness. 
Because the world is real, my friends. And some things, turns out, are life and death. The problem, though, is when we get stuck on that. When we then say, all right, we've got to have some limits. We've got to do some, we've got to avoid some things for our own good. And we allow that to become the only tool in our toolkit. We build more and more railings. We extend beyond what might naturally be needed for our own good. And we add onto it the things that we prefer, things that we like. I'm thinking about how much I enforce silence and calm in the house in a way that doesn't do this little guy any good and is certainly no question of life and death. So can we say that the law is necessary but not sufficient? That the stick may be part of what we need as humans to survive in this world. Part of what we need from God, who provides perspective and clarity. Part of what we need from each other, who provide accountability. To say, no, really, I know you think that it would be fine to walk back and forth on that one flat bit on the other side of the railing. And you know what? You probably would get away with it most of the time, but... On the one chance you don't, that's a long fall, and you will not get back up from it. So don't push that border. But some of the other rails that have been set up by the construction company, let's talk about them. Let's see if they need to be shifted. Let's see what can be done. And that conversation only can happen if we stop being a donkey that's constantly craning its neck over, looking at the stick behind, and we straighten ourselves out and look towards the goal, look towards what is good, not just obsessing about what could go wrong. This is Jesus' power to help all humanity. Lifted up on the cross, like the golden serpent that saved the people in Israel, lifted up for the whole world to see, dangled like a carrot, offering a way of living, a way of feeling, a way of loving that is attractive to everyone and that the whole world yearns for. This Lent season, we are invited to take some stones from the bowl here and drop them in the water, symbolizing and signifying things in our lives that we realize aren't good for us, that we want to let go of, that we want to be, allow be submerged in God's peace. As we do that, I don't want you just to be thinking about the bad thing, about the thing that you don't like, about the, the chocolate or the sugar or the alcohol or the whatever it is you want to give up for Lent. I want you to be thinking about the carrot, the good thing, the payoff. Look forward to, if it's sugar, 
the changes in your diet and energy levels. Replace what you're giving up, not with emptiness in your heart, but with Christ and Christ's goodness, with the thing that you are hoping for and yearning for. Today, as we start off Lent and we think about how we want to clean house, how we want to prepare ourselves for resurrection, I propose that we are digging for carrots. The sticks in our lives, the the rules, the walls, the boundaries are often all too evident. And they are, some of them, vitally important. Some of them are culturally important. Some of them are relatively important. And some of them need change, I will frankly admit. But I want to say, let's turn away from focusing on what is negative and what is lost and hang our hearts on what is gained, on the grace promised in Christ who has put a bookend on human history, a new Adam, one who obeyed so that all may joyfully obey.